Heavenly Father, we yeah, do pray that you could open your word to each of us now, open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ in this passage. Uh, please help us to be encouraged, uh, to be rebuked where we need it, uh, but to walk away with our eyes firmly fixed on Christ and the hope that we do have in him. We do pray this for his sake. Amen. Uh, so over the last five weeks, uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Kings, looking at the life of King Solomon. Uh, well, this evening, the story is going to come to an end. We're going to hear about the final chapter in Solomon's life. Now, it's a sad ending because we're going to both see Solomon at the peak of his powers, but also we're going to see one of the greatest falls from grace in history. And more than just this being a sad story, uh, I think if we sit with it, it can be a really confronting passage for us as well, because it forces us to ask one of the hardest questions there is of whether our hearts and our lives actually line up. But as we start, we see Solomon at the top of his powers as king of the world. Uh, last week, we had the opening ceremony of the temple, and one thing that Solomon prayed over the temple was for foreigners who had come from a distant land because they've heard of God's great name. Now, here in chapter 10, uh, it pretty much seems like this prayer has been answered because we hear the Queen of Sheba, she comes to visit Solomon with a very large entourage with camels bearing spices, gold in abundance, and precious stones, purely because she's heard about Solomon's great fame connected with the name of the Lord. And we hear that she's come to test Solomon with difficult questions. Now, when I, was, uh, when I first became a Christian at uni, I had a million questions. I would ask them to anyone who would listen. And the fact that people had thought about these things before and they had some kind of answers, even if they weren't complete answers a lot of the time, that was a massive help to me in seeing the Christian faith could actually be trusted in, not just superficially trusted in if you just ignored this and that over there. It seems like the Queen of Sheba is a similar type. She's traveled cross-country to ask Solomon every burning question she's ever had. In verse 2, it says, she came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. Now, we can only imagine what these questions were, what burning questions this queen had about life and God and the human heart. We've also heard earlier that Solomon was an expert on trees, birds, reptiles, and fish, so maybe she had some questions about reptiles, birds, and fish as well. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but Solomon, being king of the world, whatever they were, he knocks them out of the park anyway. We hear that Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. So he passes the wise king test with flying colors, and of course this queen is impressed. Not only with his wisdom, but with his palace, with his food, the houses of his servants, the clothes of his servants, all the offerings that he gave at the temple, we hear that all of it took her breath away. And so she says to Solomon, blessed be the Lord your God, he delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you the king to carry out justice and righteousness. So could it get any better? Royalty from all over the world is coming into God's kingdom. They're praising God because just how obvious it is, God is at work in his kingdom. And this queen, she can't deny it. 
And verse 23, uh, it sums up pretty well. It says, King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and in wisdom. The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. This is as good as it gets. But unfortunately, just like so many public figures, their pinnacle is always going to be remembered as the start of their downfall. And if we can sum up what went wrong in just one verse, well, I think Solomon puts it himself pretty well when he writes, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Because from this point, King Solomon goes from being the king of the world to the worldly king. And all the illusions, all the foreshadowings, they all come into the light. Everything that's been grey, everything Solomon's done that's been kind of inconsistent, but maybe good, but sort of ambiguous, all of that has led us here with, without a shadow of a doubt, here we know what's on Solomon's heart. In the passage that Sarah just read out, I don't know when you felt the mood change. Uh, in 11 verse 4, it actually says directly, Solomon's heart has turned from the Lord, but if we have Deuteronomy 17 in the back of our minds, alarm bells should have been ringing well before then. Because Deuteronomy 17, it was a big passage of God talking about the do's and do not do's of being a king in Israel. And here's what God says in this passage, it's the, what I call the bad king test. It basically comes down to four things. Have you acquired many horses? Have you acquired many wives? Have you acquired a lot of silver and gold? Have you neglected the word of God? Well, 1 Kings 10 and 11, it couldn't do more to sound the alarm bells for us that absolutely everything that God asks a king to, in Israel to do, Solomon is not doing. Because we hear Solomon accumulated 12,000 horsemen, the horses were imported from Egypt, we hear that King Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives. We hear that the weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was 25 tons. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And we hear that Solomon was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. In every category, he's disobeying God's word so much it almost seems absurd. Every one of these categories... It's an image of worldly success, of Solomon trying to look like all the other nations, of chariots, horsemen, tons of gold. And I think even the wives are a picture not only of abusive self-indulgence, but of him trying to get his foot in the door for political power with these other foreign nations as well. Now, when I was in primary school, all the uh, cool kids, i.e. not me, uh, they had caps they wore with SMP written on the front. And they all told me it stood for sex, money, power. Uh, I was so uncool that I didn't even understand what that meant. Uh, it was the 90s. Uh, but it seems like Solomon is wearing one of these caps as well. Because everything he was doing seemed to be driven by these three big worldly desires for sex, for money, and for power. So something has gone horribly wrong here. And like we saw last week, that, that fourth category we looked at, that he failed in the bad king test, that's pretty much from Solomon's own lips. Because his final words in the book of 1 Kings that we hear him speak, he says, 
Be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commands as it is today. And here, it's like the narrator's chiming in to say, you remember that thing that you prayed, Solomon? Well, I'm kind of going to use those words to sum up how that's exactly what you didn't do. All of these things, of course, they were disobeying the word of God. Every one of these actions was wrong, but the main concern in this passage actually seems to be with Solomon's heart. It's just like Jesus teaches, from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. If this was the, this was the Mark drama, I'd just point at people and they'd read that out for me, but I have to read it out for myself. Uh, and it's no surprise then that this section it uses that word heart six times. Suddenly, the passage is obsessed with Solomon's heart. Because while in chapter 3 we heard that Solomon loved the Lord, here we read that King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, they, will, they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow other gods. So it wasn't just that Solomon was unfaithful by having many wives, it wasn't just that he was unfaithful by having many foreign wives. It was that just as God had predicted, he was unfaithful by letting his heart be led away to be unfaithful with other gods as well. And we read, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to the Lord. So he wasn't just unfaithful in marriage, but in some sense he was sleeping around with other gods as well. And I don't know how intentional it was, but I think it's interesting to note that Solomon's greatest displays of wisdom were before women. If you think of his two iconic moments of wisdom, but the, the case of the two prostitutes and with the Queen of Sheba having answers to her every question, uh, but also his greatest folly was with women falling for hundreds of wives and concubines. Uh, so it almost seems like every time his wisdom is tested theoretically with women, he passes with flying colours, but every time it's tested practically, he seems to fall at every hurdle. And the wives and concubines, they lead his heart away from God. Or did they? Because one of the biggest questions for us at this point, I know a lot of you have been wrestling with this question throughout the series, is... Was this a sudden fall for Solomon, or was this actually a gradual decline throughout his life? And it's often the question today when we find out someone in a position of power has a shocking sin that's exposed, they've fallen from grace. Were there any signs? Could we have seen this coming? Uh, or was this Solomon's great and good kingdom that's come to a crashing and completely unexpected end? I heard a sermon once that said no one could have predicted this ending, that everything is painted in rose-colored glasses, glowingly praising up until this end, and all of a sudden it comes crashing down to everyone's surprise. But is it? Well, I'm convinced that nothing here happened suddenly, that Solomon's heart going astray was a process, even if the outworking happened suddenly at the end of his life. Solomon, he didn't lose his heart in one go, but he was worn down moment by moment, by other loves. 
Now we have quite a few uh, picture frames in our unit. They're stuck up with those uh, sticky strip things. Um, it hasn't happened for a while, but when we first moved in, it seemed like every week one of them would all of a sudden come tumbling down, the frame would crack. Uh, I'd have a heart attack just about, but uh, I think we've gotten better sticky strip things, so it hasn't happened as much lately. But um, in that, it wasn't actually that they came down suddenly, it was that the humidity had been loosening them bit by bit without us realizing it, readying for them to fall. And so with Solomon, how had he been worn down bit by bit? Because sure, we've read Solomon loved the Lord, but also in the second half of that verse, but he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, i.e. he worshipped other gods. And sure, it says Solomon asked God for wisdom after that, and that pleased God, but he showed this wisdom by judging a court case from a local Israelite brothel, and you'd have to think its existence in his kingdom was probably a bigger concern to begin with. And even though with asking for wisdom, Solomon made a decision for the Lord, and to all appearances it seemed good and sincere and faithful, well, that didn't change the ending. So that's a warning to every one of us. If we are banking on any one moment, whether it's our baptism or saying a particular prayer, to get us over the line with God? Well, none of us is more immune than Solomon. If it was going to work for anyone, surely it would be Solomon because he had the most profound, intimate revelations with God. We even hear about it when God's angry with him in chapter 11. It says the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. But even that didn't guarantee that Solomon would stay the course. Because all of life is repentance, that was true for Solomon, that's true for us. To faithfully follow God, all of our lives have to be filled with turning from our sin, turning to the face of God in Christ, and receiving His grace. No single profound moment can change that for any of us. And as well as that, three times in Solomon's story, the narrator, he gives us warning signs along the road. We read three times, it says, remember Solomon, if you're faithful, your throne will be safe. Three times it says that, and every time that God clarifies with an if, we're getting just that little bit more doubt about what's coming. I heard a pastor tell a story once about a young man who'd grown up in his church. Uh, this young man was in the youth group, he did well in school, he went to uni, became president of the Christian group on campus. After he'd graduated, he became a medic. He went to Africa and worked there for five years. He came back, married his youth group sweetheart. Uh, he had a thriving medical practice. And then one day he came home to tell his wife and kids that he was gonna go and move out with his secretary. And someone asked the pastor what went wrong and he said, oh, it's because he wasn't a Christian. And they said, oh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? And the pastor said, well, not really. After I'd spent time with him over the next few months, we found out he'd gone to the youth group because he wanted to. He went to uni because he wanted to. He became president of the Christian group because he wanted to. He went to Africa because he wanted to. He married his childhood sweetheart because he wanted to. And then he had an affair and moved out with his secretary because he wanted to. He was being absolutely consistent. He was never showing any evidence of living for God rather than himself which maybe sums up Solomon's life pretty well, even if at times his life looked like he was doing the right thing. 
He was doing everything because he wanted to. But it can be so easy to miss those warning signs. Uh, We don't want to bring them up with someone or we don't want to seem judgmental. We don't want to hurt them. Uh, We might think it's a character flaw, but it's outweighed by all the good this person's doing. Uh, But I think this passage should give us at least a moment's hesitation in that to think that maybe sometimes if there are signs along the way that someone's heart might be veering away from faithfulness, even if you are misreading it, even if everything is actually going to be completely fine, maybe it's just worth bringing it up anyway. Graciously, humbly, prayerfully, knowing that you're capable of every bit of sin that they are, but bringing it up with them because you know just how easy it is to ignore those warning signs. Because who knows what could have happened if someone had actually brought this up with Solomon, just like Nathan the prophet did for his father David, actually stepped in to rebuke Solomon. Maybe nothing, Uh, maybe his heart was too hard already, but maybe, like his father David, it would have actually brought him back on course to live in faithfulness. But instead, at the end, end of Solomon's life, God says to him, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant, Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of, your servant da- of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. So just like there was that connection between Solomon's many wives and many gods stealing his heart, there seems to be a connection between Solomon's heart and his kingdom here as well. Because both are divided. From this point in the Old Testament... Uh, There's the northern kingdom with its king. There's the southern kingdom with its king. For the rest of the Old Testament, Israel, it's going to be split, just like Solomon's heart. Because as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. Which brings us to our final point, behold your king. Which is where we all have to make up our minds, who is your true king? I'm not talking about Charles, I'm talking about Solomon or Christ. Which sounds like a ridiculous question, uh, but looking at Solomon's life, I think what we've seen in many ways is that he's almost the patron saint of our culture. Solomon is the guy saying, my truth isn't your truth. A little fun never hurt anyone. I can treat myself. I can't help who I fall in love with. Even after all this time, in Solomon's older years, he's reinvented himself. He's still got passion and drive and influence. He's the modern, self-made man who has everything, even if he's forfeited his soul in the process. And it's pretty easy to just write him off and say, yeah, I can't believe he did any of that, but without seeing that Solomon is really just like us. Because freedom of expression, that's pretty much the air that we breathe. Just like Solomon, our lives are shaped by what we want. Sometimes it feels like the only moral lens that our culture has is the lens of freedom. Is this helping someone to be free? Well then, if it's yes, then it must be good. Even if when we stop and think about it, we know that most of what we call freedom isn't actually liberating, it's actually enchaining. And maybe we've confused freedom with a mere freedom of choice or freedom of expression. There's a pastor in Melbourne, he's a guy called Mark Sayers, he's got a really helpful way of thinking about this. Uh, He talks about how God has made 
humanity to be filled with three basic needs. Um, that one. Uh, freedom, meaning, and presence. And he says that in the West, our tank of freedom is overflowing, but our tanks of meaning and presence are bone dry. And whenever we try and fix what we feel that we're lacking, often our instinct is to pour more into the freedom tank. But that's not what we need, more freedom, at least freedom of, freedom of choice, freedom of expression. Because ironically, that's what's it's enslaving us. Uh, whether it is sex, money and power, or family, or romantic love, or comfort, I think we all know they can too easily become too much in our hearts. One of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, he wrote a lot about this idea of disordered loves, of how we unravel when we get the order wrong in our hearts, when our hearts love and worship God. Uh, even though they'll never do it perfectly, it's always going to be at least a little bit divided. Uh, but when our heart is resting in God and His grace in Christ, then that's how we're meant to live. Uh, but when other things come above God, whatever they are, even though they might be good things in themselves, when they come above God, that's when it starts to become idolatry, that's when we start to unravel. And just like Solomon, this can be a gradual change that happens over time of temptations becoming too strong, of our hearts getting drawn away from the living God. And just like Solomon, this change can happen because of the influence of people in our lives, the, the people we love. And while very few of us will have hundreds of wives from other faiths who will turn our hearts away from God, I think this, is, this can still be just as much of a danger for us. Here's how one uh, sharp Christian thinker put it. He said, idolatry is caught more than it is taught. We practice our way into idolatries, absorb them from the water in which we swim. Hence, our idolatries often reflect the ethos of our environments. In short, he's saying, the people you love will shape the things that you love. And the things that you love will shape the things that you worship. Whether it's your friends and family or people online, or YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it happens to be, whether it's a partner. I think this passage is saying to us, be wise in who gets a say in shaping your loves. Because the people you love will shape the things you love and the things you love will shape the things you worship. So if the answer isn't more freedom, at least more freedom of expression, and the answer is in our loves being put back in the right order, then how do we do that? Well, the reality is just like our hearts often don't turn from God on their own, also we can't fix this on our own. What we need is a new king. We need a new king who gives us the right boundaries for our freedom and a loving community for us to grow and thrive in, to reshape our loves. But actually, more than that, we, we need a new king to give us a new heart. We need the creator of heaven and earth to create a new heart in us to start changing our lives back in the right direction, to give you a heart that will grow in wanting what God wants. And in Jesus, we get a king who is pretty much the polar opposite of Solomon. Because Jesus didn't take, but he gave himself for us on the cross. He didn't fall into pride, but he humbled himself. He didn't fall into temptation, but he stayed faithful to the end. And this king is more than worthy of every bit of love that you have 
And he will never leave you. He will never betray you. He will never forsake you. And to a church in the first century, um, and no doubt some of us, uh, Jesus says this. He says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. So looking to Solomon's example, we need to be very careful that we don't fall out of love with Christ either. And if Jesus' words here are speaking to you, if you have fallen from the love that you know that you used to have for Christ, you're aware of it, you know that you've made too much of lesser loves for too long, then come back to your first love. Because Jesus is far from being an oppressive king. His arms are open wide to offer you a life of the best kind of freedom in him, where our loves do become like his. And he died to give us life that we might actually love well. And so that we can never actually lose what we love, which really is the ultimate wisdom. Let me pray that for all of us now. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's incredible to think that you loved and cared for us so much, Lord, that you gave your Son to be crucified for us. And Father, please keep us resting on your free grace in Christ for everything that we have and everything that we are. May our only boast be in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we can honestly say the world has been crucified to us and we have been crucified to the world. Please give every one of our restless souls rest in you. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.